Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, you're feeling good about this? Oh, huh. That's you right mean, now. You mean the big game? Oh, yes. I guess I'll have to bleep out. What you just said. What I just said. Absolutely. How are you feeling about the big game? Uh, I just learned that it was happening right now. Oh. Uh, that is the degree to which I do not care. Okay. I, I don't care one way or the other, uh, but I know uh, a friend of mine is rooting for the Eagles. I what? mean, should what? I sit not say Eagles? What's, what city is that? I don't know. The yeah. jersey's green. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is my level of engagement. We're not sports people. No. Which is totally fine. If you're a sports person, go you. I hope your team did well. Yeah. I hope everyone had fun. Yeah. And enjoyed their pizza party afterwards. Right. No, I'm doing good because like we've had a really nice weekend with our friends. For once, I feel kind of like ahead of the game on my work. Yeah. And. That's great. Yeah. I'm still behind on like my day job work, but I, I finished like scream scene work like at a reasonable time this week. So. And I, for one, am quite thankful for that. <laughs> <laughs> I am also feeling pretty good about this weekend. Um, lots of friend time and uh, feeling good. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly because I am super excited about tonight's movie. Do you want to share what we're watching? So tonight we are watching The Mummy from 1959. This is the Hammer Horror version directed by Terrence Fisher. Yeah, the Hammer Horror Mummy series has been a big blind spot mm-hmm. for me. Um, I've seen the Universal Mummy before, even watching it for the podcast. Um, have obviously seen the 1999 The Mummy many, many times and its sequels as well. So I, I'm really excited to dig into a Mummy franchise that I like have never experienced before. Yeah, this is sort of like the, the middle child you know, between the <laughs> the earlier Universal movies and then there's the later Universal movies. So it's the often neglected middle child. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of the, the, the like wide variety of mummy movies, there is something a little unique about this film, uh, at least when it comes to Hammer movies up to this point. Okay. So, you know, we've been seeing Hammer horrors for a while now, but Hammer has experienced like its biggest successes with Curse of Frankenstein uh, in 1957, Horror of Dracula in 1958, and Revenge of Frankenstein earlier in 1959. And these were movies that, you know, adapted public domain characters, but still had to tread lightly to avoid infringing on the copyrights of Universal Pictures, whose Frankenstein and Dracula movies, you have to kind of remember, like, we're not even 30 years old yet. Mm. at this point right yeah very true like it's sometimes a little bit hard to like put yourself in those shoes but like in 1959 you know frankenstein and dracula like as movies were as old as like i don't know batman returns is to us now um (laughs) oh god (laughs) yeah i guess right so it's like they're older movies but they aren't ancient dusty tomes right Mm -hmm. um 
and but without like reruns there is a level of like is this what happened is that what not happened but you did have like re-releases yes in theaters uh a lot of the time um before the home video era so you know the universal pictures versions of those monsters and characters had specific things that they had to avoid right their frankenstein's monster couldn't resemble universals so like hammer's frankenstein movies focused on the doctor instead of the monster and their dracula film featured a much more like active van helsing who was firmly in the protagonist role right and active as in jumping off tables right. as well. yes action van helsing mm-hmm. um so you know this helped indicate that these were separate versions but for a lot of moviegoers it still felt like especially with that one two dracula frankenstein punch very much like hammer was following in universal's footsteps Mm -hmm. so by 1959 uh hammer's success meant that they had some clout some cash some walking around money some opportunity cash and cachet so When the time came to kind of hit the next highlight in Universal's filmography, like we did Frankenstein, we did Dracula, what's next? Hammer hammered out a deal with Universal International for remake rights to their monster movies in exchange for UI getting distribution rights in the United States. Okay. So like by this point, Hammer doesn't have to like pussyfoot around, oh, let's make sure it's different enough. They're just like, yeah, Universal will buy the rights from you and then you get to be our U.S. distributor rather than Columbia or Warner Brothers or one of the other companies. So they did a three-picture deal with Universal for the remake rights to The Mummy, Phantom of the Opera, and The Invisible Man. Oh, shit. So what that meant was this Mummy movie could be a direct like remake of the universal version, which was like useful because the universal mummy was not based on like some pre-existing novel. So Jimmy Sangster, who had written the two Frankenstein movies and Dracula and like three other British horror movies, uh, he was brought back to pen the screenplay, which combines elements from all five universal mummy movies, including characters, scenes, plots, and concepts into like one ultimate mummy movie (laughs) so it's probably a good idea to refresh a little on the older universal mummy movies um because it's it's been a while yes about 15 years Mm -hmm. uh, at least from the last one if i'm going to refresh you have to cast your minds back um even further than 15 years we have to go all the way back to 1932 with the mummy directed by carl freund uh if you want to hear what we thought of the original mummy you can find episode 35 and it's currently ranked number 173 for the longest time the mummy was almost like at the halfway point of the list Mm -hmm. so just a point of order for that uh it's at number 173 out of 259 which means it's within like the top 60 percent okay so you know a little better than 50% now, but uh, yeah. The 1932 The Mummy was originated because of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb and a reinvigoration of like, oh, the mummy curse and everything like that going on in, um, in the media. 
Um, so with the mummy, they kind of set it in like 1910s, 19, early 1920s, kind of the height era of uh, when people were going out and doing these archaeological digs. The mummy of the title is of priest Imhotep, who we see was buried alive for having a romance with Anka Cinnamon, like cinnamon. Um, she was a priestess of Isis, and Imhotep is played by Boris Karloff. Now he's been mummified, it's like thousands of years later, and he is brought back to life through the scroll of Thoth. And after being brought back, after about 10 years, he has integrated and assimilated into Egyptian culture, going by the name of Ardith Bey. And he basically makes his trade by leading expeditions into the desert, because as a past priest, he knows where all of the good dig sites are. Now, he meets the daughter of uh, one archaeologist, uh, and her name is Helen Grosvenor. She is like half Dutch, half Egyptian. And Imhotep believes that she is the reincarnation of his lost love. Uh, so he tries to basically kill her to mummify her and then reanimate her uh, using the scroll of Thoth through this process of like trying to call back her memories and make her realize that she's the reincarnation. Uh, Helen remembers her past life and prays for Isis to help her. And through the deus ex machina of Isis, the scroll of Thoth gets burned up and Imhotep crumbles to dust. Now, because of the timing of the making of the mummy, riding the coattails of Dracula's success, a lot of it follows those same plot beats. And ultimately, we found that the mummy was fairly tame and middling in its horror, which is kind of why it always seemed to be in the middle of the list. Mm -hmm. If I recall correctly, the mummy did fairly well at the box office, but not enough to get some of these sequels like we saw with Dracula and Frankenstein. And the mummy also never returned for any of these like Monster Valley movies. So that was kind of it for uh, Imhotep. Yeah. The Mummy Returns in a 1940 remake, I would say, rather than sequel, because it's a completely different mummy. This is where Karis comes in, and Karis is played by a man named Tom Tyler. The 1940s The Mummy's Hand was directed by Christy Caban. We covered it in episode 78, and it is currently ranked at number 211, making it the lowest ranked of the Mummy movies. Huh. And that's not because it's like particularly bad. It's because this is when they step up kind of away from horror and more into the adventure. Um, there's still enough horror here that we included it on the list, but that is why we ranked it so low. So in the film, it's set in like the 1910s again with like the, the height of the archaeological digs. And we see that there are the priests of Karnak using the mummy Karis to protect Princess Anunka's tomb. Karis, thousands of years ago, was a priest and he was cursed for trying to steal Tana leaves in order to revive his love, Anunka. And the curse was that, like, cool, he'll be a slave to us, the priests of Karnak, to protect the temple. And he is controlled through these Tana leaves. Um, now, there's an archaeologist team made up of Steve Banning, Babe Hansen, and Marta Silvani, who head into the desert to try to find Princess Nanka's tomb. And as such, uh, they become targets of the priests of Karnak and of Karis. And the way that the priests try to get Karis to attack them is by putting tunnel leaf juice 
on the archaeologists and then getting cars to go after them rather than any kind of, I don't know, easier way of killing people. Again, if you can sneak into their tents and get close enough to put like, you know, a glass of tana leaf juice to put their hands in while they're sleeping, you're close enough to kill them. <laughs> you don't need to go back home and tell Karas to walk there at the speed of shuffle. Exactly. Now the head priest, his name is Endaheb, he falls in love with Marta and has Karas kidnap her. The priests of Karnak are supposed to be celibate, but no, Marta's just too hot. In the middle of um, the ceremony to like have Marta wed Endaheb, um, our boys, Babe and Steve, break in and rescue her. Uh, Karis gets lit on fire. Everything gets lit on fire, basically. And um, in the middle of all that, Karis rises up against his creator, the priest, in a very Frankenstein-esque ending. Um, but we see that Marta, Babe, Steve, they all get away. Two years later, uh, Universal followed that up with The Mummy's Tomb, confusingly set 30 years later, making it set in the present day, of 1942. The Mummy's Tomb was directed by Harold Young. We covered it in episode 95, and it is currently ranked at number 146, the highest of the Mummy movies. As I said, it's set 30 years later, and Priest Andaheb is passing his duties to new priest Mehmet Bey, and tells him, remember those dickheads who came in here named Steve Banning, Babe Hansen, and Marta Silvani? Well, they got rich off of plundering our tomb. So you take Horace, head over to Massachusetts, and wreak revenge. So, Mehmet Bay with Cars heads to Mapleton, Massachusetts, and uh, slowly everyone gets killed. Um, Cars in this film is played by Lon Chaney Jr., and we see him kind of shuffling through Massachusetts in a kind of proto-serial killer plot. Um, first, Steve is killed, then his sister Jane, Babe uh, is increasingly convinced that there's a mummy about because of like the bandages left around. Um, but before he can like really convince anyone, he gets killed. Now, this film is a little bit of a passing of the torch because Steve's son, Dr. John Banning, is investigating and confirms the link to a mummy with a colleague, Professor Norman. Um, in the midst of doing the investigations, Mohammed Bey falls in love with John's fiance Isabel. Mohammed Bey gets Karis to kidnap Isabel, and Karis is like, fucking this shit again, fine. Now there is a town mob that gets to Mohammed Bey and kind of destroys him. Karis, carrying Isabel, ends up into a mansion house that gets lit on fire. Isabel manages to escape, and Karis gets burned up. So we can see some similarities growing yes, uh, and, and being cultivated in the sense of like priest falls in love with chick, Kars gets mad and Kars kills the priest. Yeah. Um, and we see that again in 1944's The Mummy's Ghost. This was directed by Reginald LeBorg. We covered it in episode 121 and it is currently ranked at number 210. So just above The Mummy's Hand. Uh, so I think it's also fair to call this the lowest ranking of the mummy movies because it's bad. It's not good at all. And the only reason why it ranks above the mummy's hand is because of its emphasis on horror rather than adventure. In any case, we see that Endaheb, high priest of Arkham this time, 
uh, is passing his duties to Yusuf Bey and commands Bey to head to Mapleton to retrieve the body of Karis. Um, also on display at the local museum is the body of Ananka. So Bay is also hoping to bring back Ananka's body. Now we see Professor Norman here again. He's researching the bandages um, that were left from the previous movie. Um, and he has a student named Tom. And Tom has a girlfriend who is Egyptian named Amina. So through the use of tana leaves, Karis kills Professor Norman. And when Karis and Bay go to take Nanka's body out of the museum, it disintegrates because the soul has already been reincarnated into Amina. Throughout all of this, Bay falls for Amina, gets Karis to kidnap her. Karis gets mad about this and kills Bay, and then carries the now rapidly aging Amina into the famous swamps of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. That same year, 1944, we had The Mummy's Curse, uh, which was directed by Leslie Goodwins. We covered it in episode 126. So that would be five episodes after the previous one to kind of give a hint for like how soon after the previous one this one came out. And it is currently ranked at number 203. So a little little better, a little better showing. We are now uh, a few years later in... Like, it's unclear what year it is, but I think they're trying to say that it's like the 1950s, maybe 1960s. We are set in Louisiana, like we've always been, (laughs) wink, wink. Um, And we're trying to drain the bayou swamp. Um, But the workers keep getting spooked because, you know, there's the legend of the mummy cars getting like stuck in in the mud here. Like, we don't really want to be working in this area. Uh, Now, the local museum, the Scripps Museum, terrible name, uh, has sent two experts to help find some of these bodies, the the mummy bodies, and one of them, Dr. Zendab, turns out to be a high priest of Arkham with a hunchback servant named Ragheb. They are trying to find Karis, and while they do find Karis after, you know, he rises and kills someone, we see that Ananka rises on her own and suddenly is fully young again and is being helped by the town, notably by uh, a woman named Betty. So Karis is sent after Ananka, and ultimately it's the same kind of plot line with a notable difference. Uh, the downfall comes with Ragheb being horny rather than the priest. Ragheb has a big crush on Betty, and when Betty gets kidnapped alongside Ananka, Ragheb really wants to go for Betty. Um, And it's that threat of sexual violence that kind of bumped this movie up a little bit in our rankings, even though it is still fairly low because it's not that great of a movie. It's Raghab who kills Zandab. And then Karis, seeing what Raghab is doing, uh, kills him to basically protect Ananka at the end of the day. So while Betty and her love interest, whose name is Halsey, escape um, while this like castle's crumbling around them, um, they see that Karis gets trapped underneath rubble while he's killing Ragheb, and Ananka has basically, her mummified body has completely disintegrated. And that's the last that, in terms of chronologically, the last mummy movie. But I wanted to note that in a horror-adjacent movie, we have covered the 1999 The Mummy. It's uh, the second bonus episode that we ever did. But if you want to hear our thoughts on that, 
version, that it exists. Um, so we've covered every mummy movie, basically. Well, the important ones, except for Hammer Horror. Yeah, there was, uh, just so nobody tweets at us, an Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy movie in the 50s that sure. we might get around to eventually. Sure. And that was a universal picture with, like, Karis and the gang. Um, but, you know, that was, like, um, you know, definitely a, a comedy take, right? Yeah, and I completely forgot about that, so... Don't worry about it. Okay, okay. In terms of horror, yeah, that's what we've done. Yeah. So, you know, they got Jimmy Sangster back to do the script. And once again, the picture was directed by Terrence Fisher, who had just shot Hound of the Baskervilles for Hammer. Um, Which we've also covered. Yes, in a bonus episode. And so, like, we're really, we're getting the gang back together. Like, the people who made Dracula and Frankenstein, they're the people who made this movie. Now, unlike the graphic gore that was in the Dracula and Frankenstein movies, Fisher said that he wanted to go like subtler this time around. He wanted to try to show things like implicitly rather than explicitly. And in interviews, he tried to like couch this as a conscious stylistic choice. However, um, we know that shots of like the mummy's tongue being removed during the mummification process and things like that were cut by the British censors before the theatrical release of the film. Oh. So it's possible that it actually was just as gory as the others, but they didn't make it past the censors this time. And that Fisher then sort of tried to like rewrite history by portraying that as a like style choice this time around. Who's to say? I wonder if he's also starting to feel boxed in with like an idea that he's a one trick pony. Sure. Um, either way, this film is is notably like less gory um, and spends more of its energy on trying to be like atmospheric. Okay. So uh, cinematographer Jack Asher returned. Uh, we're once again in Technicolor, making this our first color mummy movie. Editor Alex Cox returns. Production designer Bernard Robinson returns. And makeup artist Roy Ashton, who had been an assistant on Dracula and Frankenstein, leveled up to, like, head special effects makeup artist for The Mummy. Peter Cushing, uh, fresh off of Hound of the Baskervilles, plays the role of the hero, John Banning, who was played by John Hubbard in The Mummy's Tomb, and is the son of Stephen Banning, who was played by Dick Ferran in The Mummy's Hand and The Mummy's Tomb, and is here played by Felix Aylmer. Aylmer was a respected stage actor going back to 1911 and was known for his wise old men characters, which were both like widely imitated um, to the point where it was said that like judges would talk like Felix Aylmer characters because it like <laughs> made them seem more weighty. Um, but he was also like widely mocked like Peter Sellers and other like British comedians would kind of like do takeoffs on his characters. Um, he played the Archbishop of Canterbury in Laurence Olivier's Henry V. He played Polonius in Laurence Olivier's Hamlet. He played Merlin in the 1953 Knights of the Round Table film. He played a different Archbishop of Canterbury in Beckett. And he was the narrator of the original version of Richard Williams' The Thief and the Cobbler. Okay. Now, with Peter Cushing once again in the role of the hero... Christopher Lee finds himself once again cast in the role of the monster. He plays the mummy Karis, uh, who, as you noted, was played by Tom Tyler in The Mummy's Hand and by Lon Chaney Jr. in the other mummy movies and ultimately as a character is based on 
the Imhotep character played by Boris Karloff in the original film. Actress Yvonne Ferno uh, plays Isabel Banning, the role played by Elise Knox in The Mummy's Tomb. And here, Isabel's been conflated in with the reincarnation of Princess Ananka, who was played by Ramsay Ames in The Mummy's Ghost and Virginia Christie in The Mummy's Curse. So as you can see, we're we're just like we're doing a speed run yeah. here of all of the the mummies. Um, Yvonne was born Elizabeth Yvonne Scatcherd to English parents living in France in 1928. She studied at Oxford as Tessa Scratchard and became involved in university theater groups. She made her professional stage debut in 1952 as Yvonne Ferno and soon began appearing on film. After The Mummy, she would appear in Federico Fellini's La Dolce Vita, and she would retire to Switzerland in 1985. Cool. Raymond Huntley plays Sir Joseph Wemple, a role played by Arthur Byron in the original 1932 film. He's like the older archaeologist who like finances the dig. Okay. Uh, Huntley was the second actor to play Dracula on stage after Edmund Blake in the 1927 London production of the play Dracula. He declined continuing the role for the U.S. Broadway version, which opened the door for Bela Lugosi to step in. And in later life, he expressed that he viewed taking the role of Dracula as an indiscretion of my youth. Interesting. Because we know how it played out for Bela Lugosi. Mm. In his long film career, he frequently played authority figures best summed up as pompous windbags. George Pastel plays the role of Mehmet Bey, a role played by Turhan Bey in The Mummy's Tomb, but which is also a conflation of the very similar roles played by George Zuko, John Carradine, and Peter Coe in The Mummy's Hand, Ghost, and Curse, respectively. Born Nino Giorgio Pastelides in 1923 on the island of Cyprus to a French mother and Greek father, uh, Pastel left Cyprus to come to England to be an actor, learning English via evening classes while he took acting lessons during the day. So still not an Egyptian playing an Egyptian. Right. I think the closest we got was Turhan Bey, who is Turkish. That's right. So... Um, George Pastel sort of carved out a niche in England playing like villains and foreigners uh, beginning in 1949. He was the high priest of Kali in Hammer's dark adventure movie Stranglers of Bombay, which came out the same year as The Mummy. And he appeared in spy movies like From Russia with Love uh, throughout the 1960s. Okay. He retired from acting to live in Miami, Florida with his wife teaching and passed away in 1976 of a heart attack. The rest of the cast was rounded out by Hammer regulars like Michael Ripper, and the shoot went well so long as you weren't Christopher Lee. No, what happened to Chris? So Christopher Lee experienced numerous injuries playing the mummy. Uh, he threw his back out carrying Yvonne Furneaux. Uh, squibs used for when Peter Cushing's character shoots him burned through the costume to his skin. A door he was supposed to, like, smash through had accidentally been bolted shut the night before by a <laughs> crew member who misunderstood their instructions. Lee still broke down the door. Because um, he's a professional. But he dislocated his shoulder doing it. And that's the shot that's in the movie. Um, and then in a scene where he has to rise up out of the swamp... Uh, he injured his knees and shins bumping into the pipes at the bottom of the pool they used on set. 
This poor guy. How <laughs> old is he at this point? He's 37. Yeah. <laughs> Rough. So similar to how Peter Cushing suggested that Van Helsing hold two candlesticks together to make a crucifix in the action climax of Horror of Dracula, Cushing suggested that his character throw a spear through the mummy in this one, um, inspired by the movie's already painted poster, which shows the mummy shuffling through a swamp with like a search party behind him. And the mummy has like a hole in his torso and the party is like shining a flashlight through the hole. Okay. It's like a cool image. And Cushing was like, well, why doesn't he have a hole in him in the fucking movie? So he throws a spear <laughs> through him at one point. The film's score was composed by Franz Riesenstein, uh, who has not done the score to any Hammer movies before this. He was born to a high-profile Jewish family in 1911 in Nuremberg, uh, his father being a wealthy doctor and kind of like high society member. Riesenstein was a child prodigy. He started composing as young as five. Um, he was encouraged by his family. He was an award-winning pianist before he graduated school. He immigrated to England in 1934 to escape the Nazis and made his first English performance in 1935. His first published composition was in 1936. He was interned on the Isle of Man as an enemy alien at the start of World War II, but soon released when it was determined he was not a threat. He married English music critic Margaret Lawson in 1942. That's how you make sure you, you don't get any bad critiques. Mm. And he began teaching as a professor of piano at the Royal Academy of Music in 1958. And he passed away in 1968. So just like a really highly respected pianist and classical music composer does the score for this one. Yeah, that's really cool. The Mummy was released on September 25th, 1959 on a double bill with The Bat or Curse of the Undead in the United States. It was another smash box office hit for Hammer, even though its 125,000 pound budget made it pricier than any of the previous monster movies from Terrence Fisher. The film's visuals and other technical aspects were praised by contemporary critics, but the screenplay was considered wordy and the pacing too slow. Mm. Today, the film enjoys a reputation as the best of the classic horror mummy movies. Like, if you want, like, a mummy movie that's not an adventure picture starring Brendan Fraser, this is the good one, is kind of the <laughs> reputation that this movie has. Interesting, okay. However, um, Nina Wilcox Putnam who wrote the story for the 1932 version, but not the screenplay, which was written by John Balderston. She was not impressed in a move that fits with today's sort of Twitter social media world, but seems like, like really going out of your way to be a sass bot in 1959. She wrote a letter to Time Magazine to express that The Mummy was a disgusting English remake done without my knowledge or consent and that she felt like, you know, personally affronted because now her, like, name was associated with this other movie that she had nothing to do with um, that was awful. And, and Time Magazine was like, who's this? Yeah, like, come on, lady. For one thing, you, you, you this isn't, like, a novel. You don't have, like... Without my knowledge or consent, like, like you, you were, don't own the rights. Yeah, you were on the payroll for a studio. Yes. Your work is owned by that studio. You would yes. be familiar with that because it's not like this was your only movie ever. Yes. And you also 
they don't need the story treatment. Yeah. You didn't write the screenplay. Yeah. You just did the story treatment. Like you don't own this idea. They don't need to ask you permission. They don't need to tell you. Was she upset when they did, um, the mummy's hand and all that? Like, like I have no idea, but she was 75 when she made these comments. So, okay. She was retired and bored. Yeah. That's what I mean when I say like, this is a very like Twitter kind of thing of like, I want my name in the headlines. So I'm going to complain about something that doesn't matter. (laughs) Tell me how you really feel, Ben. Um, Excited to see this movie. Oh, good. Me too. So The Mummy is available on Blu-ray from Warner Home Video, and you can rent it on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. Cool. So it's not one of the Hammer Horrors that has uh, a challenging time finding a home movie release. Yeah, it's got a few different Region 2 releases, but in Region 1, you're looking at... On DVD, it's in a pack of like four Hammer Horror movies uh, from Warner, but on Blu-ray, it's got like its own release from Warner Home Video. Okay, cool. Well, folks, hopefully you can get a copy to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss The Mummy from 1959, directed by Terrence Fisher. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. We just finished watching The Mummy from 1959, directed by Terrence Fisher. Sarah, what did you think? I'm sorry. I'm really disappointed. Same. Yeah. There is uh, someone who is a friend of ours who I think listens to the podcast, Benito Serino, and whenever mention of The Mummy has ever come up, he's always like, oh, yeah, Hammer Horror The Mummy. And so that kind of, to me, meant that this movie would reach a certain level of like horror quality. And I'm really sorry to say I did not find that in this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This movie is so fucking boring. Yeah. Like hardly anything happens. It really made me appreciate the original 1932 movie Mm -hmm. um, a lot more. It's also wild that this cost more than Dracula or Frankenstein because it feels tremendously cheap. It really does. I don't know if it's just because like so much of it is on sets, but like... All of it's on sets. I don't think there's a single location shot in here. Not even for like stock footage for establishing shots. I thought maybe outside the house. No. No? Wow. No, that's all on a set. You have a... There's like a jungle desert set that does not convince for Egypt for a second when like, yeah, a stock footage establishing shot would have helped. There's like everyone's crisp, clean and perfect costumes and props that feel a lot like, okay, like don't, don't ruin that. We got to use that on like three other movies. Yeah. Someone had like crisp white sneakers basically. (laughs) When they were supposed to have been at like a dig site in the desert. And then there's the fact that like the back half of the movie is just everyone walking back and forth between two houses that are down the road from each other. Yeah. I am really sorry. People who are fans of this movie, um, write us at scream scene podcast at gmail.com to tell us what it is that you really enjoy about this movie. Cause I mean, there are things I do like mm-hmm. and we'll get to that in the discussion, but uh, please email us. 
if you are like a ride or die for this movie, because I would really love to hear from your point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but how about I tell the folks at home what happens so they have some more context? Sure. It's not much. <laughs> All right. So I think the biggest change, honestly, is that we are set earlier than the other Mummy movies. Um, we start in 1895 and we see an expedition led by Steve Banning, his brother, Joseph Wemple, and Steve's son, John Banning. Uh, they are out in Egypt and they are basically trying to follow the journey of Princess Ananka, who is high priestess of Karnak. Now, I just want to jump in here for a second. Yeah. Karnak's a city. Yeah. In the old Universal movies, they were always like, you know, we're the high priests of Karnak. Karnak was a temple complex. It's it's like where all the temples were. Um, it's a place. Um, but here it is most definitely a god. Like yeah, Karnak is prayed to. It is a god. Uh, so someone like didn't do their research. Or they just said, you know what, whatever. Because yeah. later on they do say like Karnak's a lesser god. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is like, because we'll we to made that. him up. Yeah. So at some point in Ananka's journey, uh, she disappeared. And so this team is trying to search for her tomb, kind of assuming that she died on the journey and trying to find her. Uh, Now, at some point, John has broken his leg. He has a wounded leg. Um, So he's bed bound while Joe and Steve try to find this tomb. They find it. And just as Joe and Steve are about to enter, a man named Mehmet Bey steps out and he, this, we're in the middle of nowhere and he just like comes out of nowhere and he's like, hey, don't go in there. I can't be held responsible for what happens. And Steve's like, I'm not asking you to be <laughs> like, it's fine. And Bay is like, no, really bad things will happen. Like, remember the curse like of you raid a tomb, you're fucked. Yeah. And Steve's like, eh. Yeah. He's like, I got all my permits. (laughs) Steve and Joe head in. They're like, oh, sweet. Yeah, this is totally Ananka's tomb. Joe leaves to go tell John. And while out of the tomb, they hear Steve scream. And Joe runs back inside. And Steve is basically catatonic and like is speechless. And there's no real answer to it. We kind of cut to a little bit later. They've finished cataloging everything that's in the tomb. They've cleared out the relics. And for reasons that are unclear to me, they blow up the tomb. Yeah, they, they dynamite it closed again. Yeah. For some reason. For some reason. Um, the closest reason they give is John, who now is like walking with like a, a crutch, um, saying that like, no, something feels evil in there. Nothing like, so we need to close it so the evil doesn't escape. No. Yeah, um, this is not standard practice. Yeah, it, it's very strange. And after they blow up the temple, uh, we cut to Mohammed Bey, who uh, is holding what we know as the uh, scroll of life, which Steve kind of grasped at before he went catatonic. And Mohammed Bey calls out to Karnak and says, don't worry, I will kill these defilers using your instrument of death. Three years later, back in England, Steve is in a mental hospital. He has been here for the last three years, and he's suddenly come out of this fugue state to tell his son John about the mummy that he saw. And John's like, yeah, the mummy Ananka. And Steve's like, no, the other mummy. There were no other mummies. What are you talking about? And Steve says that, like, no, it's going to come for us all for defiling the tomb. 
Meanwhile, uh, we see that an Egyptian relic box is being delivered through the countryside, and due to antics of drunks, it falls into a bog. Now we see that uh, this box was supposed to be delivered to Mehmet Bey, who has moved in down the street from the Bannings, and he doesn't. Who seem... are also like down the street from the mental asylum. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's very convenient. Yes, absolutely. But and know. as an as someone who has never been to England besides Heathrow, that's my impression of how England works. Right, everything's just down the street from each other. <laughs> oh boy. Kind of separated by. Uh, the moors or bogs <laughs> you know <laughs> i don't know anything i'm no. a, i'm a fool canadian okay so bay is like yeah don't worry about the box being in the bog don't worry about it that night he comes forth he has uh the scroll of life and he recites some incantations and out of the bog comes Karis, and bay sends him to go kill steve in the asylum now we see this attack and steve ends up dead so there is an inquiry to determine what happened, and they determine that a madman broke in and killed Steve. But John keeps wondering about that story of the mummy, and he talks to Joe about it, and they're like, well, is there any way that he would have any enemies? And Joe's like, well, only that one Egyptian outside of Ananka's tomb. Uh, I told you about him. <laughs> Out of his entire life, just this one guy who specifically comes to mind, but I'm sure that doesn't mean anything. Anyways, uh, so that's when John starts going through like the the legend of Ananka and what exactly happened at her tomb before she was buried, and we get a flashback of this um, this story, and we learn that there's like a, a legend about a, about a second mummy. And so we see that uh, in this flashback, Ananka died. She was buried. Karis, who was a priest of Karnak, wants to bring her back because he was in love with her. They couldn't bone down in life because they were both dedicated to Karnak. But now that she's dead, they can bone down. So he goes to bring her back to life using the scroll of life, but he gets caught. So he is buried alive as undead and must protect it. Yeah, ex exact same backstory as the universal mommy movies yeah uh except we spend uh what did you determine 12 it, minutes to do it it's yeah it, the the origin sequence in this movie is 13 minutes long and the equivalent flashback origin in the original mummy movie was six minutes long so joe is like poppycock like there, there was no like second mummy in the tomb like none of that is true there's no curse of like ananka's tomb or anything like that that night Karis bursts into the banning home and kills Joe and John tries to like shoot him with like no luck just like bullets go right through him so now Joe is dead they bring in the cops uh specifically Inspector Mulrooney he is on the case and he only deals in facts Ben cold hard facts so he doesn't want to hear anything about this mummy theory, especially now that John has literally seen that it was a fucking mummy. Mulrooney goes and does some investigation and like interviews the various people who have been involved, like the drivers of the carriage, uh, a local poacher who saw the mummy walking through the fields. And so he eventually comes around during the investigation. While Mulrooney's out doing that, John gets attacked by the mummy, and he's only saved by his wife, Isabel, who, when her hair is down, looks like Ananka. 
not specifically said that she's reincarnated. She just has a strange resemblance, perhaps because she's played by the same actress. And because of that resemblance, Karis returns to Bay, not having killed John, and Bay assumes the job has been done. Yeah, you know, just like in the older movies, um, Karis's tongue has been removed, which does mean that he can't, like, report back success or failure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he returned back, clearly, like... It must have been a success. Absolutely. So through his investigation, Mulroney starts to suspect Mohammed Bey, the only Egyptian who has moved into town and happens to also be the same person who maybe was an enemy of Steve. Too many coincidences lining up. But because it's not like, it's all circumstantial, he can't actually go talk to Bay. Uh, so John decides, well, fuck it, I'll go. Uh, and so he goes over to like welcome him to the neighborhood and they end up having like this like really intense conversation. But John confirms that, yes, Mohammed Bey is Egyptian. He's familiar with Ananka. He's familiar with my family. Like, this is the guy. He's a believer of Karnak 3,000-ish years after really that religion should have died out. Yeah. <laughs> it's the guy. Yeah. So John heads back home after that. Uh, but luckily, he has some police protection. Um, there's a drunkard in the back, a policeman in the front, and then Mulrooney standing guard uh, with Isabel. Yet somehow, Bay and Karis manage to get in, Bay taking matters into his own hands and actually stabbing some dudes. And so they go to attack John. Isabel runs in, quickly puts her hair down and says, Karis, stop. And Karis is like, oh, Anonka, of course. Yeah, I won't do anything. Mohammed Bay is like, that's not Anonka. What are you doing? Kill her. She's stopping us from completing this goal that Karnak has set out for us. Because Karis won't move, Bay goes to go stab Isabel. And so Karis kills Bay. And then grabs the scroll of life that Mohammed Bay was holding, grabs the now unconscious Isabel, and heads off into the night, slowly shuffling away. John awakes, uh, sees what's happened. Um, Mulvuni catches up with him, and they are now chasing after Karis to try to stop him, and they realize he's going back to the bog. Uh, they manage to catch up, get Isabel away, and then the cops and the villagers who have now come with their guns in like a very small village mob uh, shoot up Karis like he's like that dude in Robocop, and he gets blown to bits. And that's the end. He sinks into the mud with the scroll. Uh, so that's the end. <laughs> so it's, it's Ben kind of mentioned this already, but it's the fact that we're like back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Oh, someone's in danger. Back and forth, back and forth. Someone's in danger. Back and forth. Someone's in maybe danger. It's tense. No, he's, he's back home. It's fine. Back and forth. This movie is playing for time. A lot. A lot. Um, and it's obvious the amount of flashbacks that we get and that like are flashing back to things we saw in the movie. Yeah. So like at one point we flash back to when Steve sees the mummy and he goes catatonic, which is fine. Cool. Because we actually get to see him see the mummy that time. But we start so early that we're seeing at least like two, three minutes of things we saw 40 minutes ago. Yeah. That's the quickest way to get me to check out. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I get the idea of like some people might have come into the movie late, but 
on a structural level, like this movie, it frustrates me on so many levels that like, I don't know where to start. Like starting from the beginning of the movie, we're, you know, copying elements from Universal. Almost all of this movie kind of comes from the old Universal Mummy movies in some way or another. And we start out really badly. Um, we have this dig that doesn't look like it's in Egypt that consists of three people, two of them like over 80 years old and like <laughs> pushing. Well, let's be generous. Over 60. Yeah. And pushing, you know, death. And um, then a bunch of like workers, but like the actual like academic team is two very old men and one middle-aged guy. And that middle-aged guy is down on his like bum leg. So we're down to like two people. They open up the tomb. One of the guys goes like catatonic. And so we have like one person who can actually work on the material who is not an Egyptologist. He's just like, the um he's, financier he's the financier and it seems like it takes them maybe like a couple days to like clear out the tomb of all the stuff and then they're like cool let's let's blow the the entrance now it took 10 years to clear king tut's tomb with like a fully financed like expedition of academics to be fair Ananka's tomb is just a hole in the wall on the side of a mountain. Yeah. You know, it's not the same scale, but I definitely see what you're saying. It's just it's just that it's like it's not convincing. Yes. It's just like we feel cheap right off the bat. And then there's the fact that like, you know, the scene that they're doing here with Steve Banning going catatonic, that is they're doing a version of the scene in the original movie when the guy reads from the scroll of Thoth and Imhotep comes to life. It's the only scene where like Boris Karloff is a wrapped in bandages style mummy. And the guy like sees him and like goes mad and Imhotep shuffles off. It's probably one of the best scenes in the 1932 mummy here. We don't actually get to see it. Um, he finds the scroll of life and then we cut to some other stuff. We hear a scream. They run back and he's catatonic. We get to see the actual scene where he goes mad um, 55 minutes into this 77 minute movie when they flash back to it. And the problem with having it be a flashback later is by that point, we've seen Karis walking around killing people. So like the reveal has no impact no. whatsoever at all. Like, I feel like they were trying to set it up as this mystery of like, what made him go mad? But guess what, motherfucker? I'm seeing a movie called The Mummy. I, I know what made him go mad. Yeah. The swamp is so weird in this movie because like the only reason it's here is because it was in two of the Universal movies. And in those movies, they like drive Karis and Ananka into the swamp. Like they're chasing after them and there's nowhere else for Karis to go. And it just happens there's a swamp here and that's the end. And then in the next movie, they rise up out of the swamp. Karis rising from the swamp here feels kind of perfunctory. It's an okay sequence. It's all right. I did appreciate that when he goes to kill Steve, he's still muddy. Yes, but it's nowhere near as good as the scene in The Mummy's Curse that they're copying when Ananka rises up out of the swamp. Do you want to know my theory as to why? Why? Because it's more cinematic rather than just a camera off on the ledge. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, I know why the scene is better. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I thought you were offering explanation for why this scene is worse. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> um, because that's the real question here is like, what the fuck happened to Terrence Fisher that he stopped being able to direct a horror movie effectively? 
But like back to this swamp for a second. Yes, yes, yes. Why does Karis go back to it at the end? Like they don't chase him into the swamp. He chooses it like it's his home or something. Maybe, you know, he he misses the sands of Egypt and there was some sand in the box. And so he's like, oh, my radar says over here. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's nonsense. But like, what else are we supposed to do here? You mentioned in the context setting that Mm. Terrence Fisher was like, it's a slower pace and that's on purpose. And you hypothesize that maybe that was to kind of lampshade the gore being cut by the censors. And I don't think so. I think he was trying to go for something slower paced and more atmospheric. I think he didn't quite know how to maintain atmosphere and build for a horror movie because there are moments where you're like, like the, the tongue cutting Mm. scene for like where okay gore could have been in here or when the maidens are killed to be buried with ananka Mm -hmm. but those moments are a both in the flashback and there would not be enough even if those moments of gore had been kept in to make it scary enough to not feel boring so the thing about the gore in this movie like i really it's unfortunate that I kind of have to come down on the side of like no gore equals bore. But after the way that hammer has been like pushing the limit on things, this feels really tame. Um, This feels really sedate. Um, Like there's, you know, no violence basically perpetrated on living people outside of the flashback that isn't of like, the 1940s like i'm either gonna choke you or i'm gonna just sort of karate chop you in the back of the head and now you're dead style i do appreciate that when Karis gets shot um they have squibs that go off and like there's bullet holes and things and those bullet holes like stay on him for the rest of the movie and stuff that's Mm -hmm. cool i really like that there's like the revolver holes and then later he gets shot by a shotgun and those are like bigger squibs and so i think those are the bigger ones that like probably actually hurt christopher lee and then there's also the spear going through him i think those were great i think the makeup on him was very good so the makeup and effects were great yeah i think like lee as chorus is a standout element in the movie for a bunch of different reasons i think his makeup's really good I think his performance is really good. He manages to give emotion with just his eyes. Right. He's the best like actor to play the mummy in a mummy movie since Boris Karloff. And his size just sort of makes him also much more believably like a threat. Like he's, he's the first mummy to be like scary since Boris Karloff and Boris Karloff wasn't a shambling bandage man. Right. But like, you know, I will say like Tom Tyler and Lon Chaney Jr. Both have, size sure but they just used it for like i'm gonna power through doors uh, uh, yeah. early early lon chaney specifically he, they did they never really stood menacingly they like don't have presence Lee. yeah there we go yeah so chris Lee's great in this um the chorus makeup is really good but like what i mean about things like the tameness of it is like chorus gets killed in this by just getting shot a fuck ton of times and there's like a split second shot of him getting shot. Like we mostly 
it's off camera. And when he sinks into the bog, he like quickly turns away from the camera. It looks like his whole face has been exploded maybe by the shotgun, but we don't see any of that. And like, I think back to the 1932 mummy movie where we see him like crumble into dust with like a skull face and everything. Like it's just a little tame to me after other stuff that hammer has done for me. The best scene Mm. is when John and Mehmet Bey are talking. Yes, that is the best single scene in the movie. It's like Dracula versus Van Helsing in the 31 Dracula kind of vibes. There's tension. There's shade being thrown to each of them. You, (laughs) this movie understands that like, yeah, the British were coming and raiding your temples. Mm -hmm. Like that's fucking awful that's fucked up yeah bay has like a really good speech where he's like doesn't it like hang on your conscience that you like raid temples and then display like bodies in your museums for people to see but then john's like it's my job yeah it's like uh that's not the defense you think it's going to be well banning the thing is is he has this whole speech where he's like Yeah, you know, I thought maybe I could treat Karnak with respect, but I thought about it, and actually he's a piece of shit, and so are you. And the thing (laughs) is, is like, we are to understand that he is intentionally goading Bay, right, by belittling him. It's a great scene. That should have been the climax. He should not have been able to leave and go home. Right. It's towards the end of the movie, although everything that actually happens in this movie is towards the end of the movie, because for my, like, by the way I count it, Um, It is 56 minutes into this 77-minute movie when the plot starts and we're finally through all the flashback and setup. Yes. Um, So everything feels like it's near the end of the movie. But (laughs) this especially, yes, he should have goaded Bay into, like, sicking Karis on him there and then, and that should have been the final action climax. Instead, he goads Bay into nothing and leaves... And then well, Karis Bay has immediately to go. goes and does things, right? Yeah, for so sure. He, quote unquote, successfully goads him in a very roundabout way. But like the main thing that scene achieves is for Banning to be sure that Bay is the guy and for Bay to know that Banning isn't dead because Karis couldn't tell him one way or the other. <laughs> um, yeah. So like, yeah, that's the best scene, but it doesn't go anywhere. It's just another part of padding out the running time because like, okay, The thing that the 1932 movie and the 1999 movie do, both, that is like smart and good, Mm. is The Mummy Has Agency. Yes. So in the middle movies, in the 40s movies, in this 1959 movie, The Mummy is like a pawn of the priests. And, you know, Cars has a little bit of agency in that he turns against the priests in all of these movies for one reason or another. But like structurally, it's a problem that the mummy doesn't have agency. You don't even need him to be like in both the 32 and 99, they have him kind of like regenerate into a form where he can like talk and be a character. You don't even need to do that. No. Like he can be the shambling bandage man, but like if there's a curse on him that if you disturb the tomb, he'll come kill you. You don't need a third party to come and like tell him where to go or what to do. It should all just be magic. And he just magically knows where to go and to kill people. He's just an unstoppable magic curse killing machine. Once you introduce a human being who's like a flesh and blood dude who wants the mummy to kill people for him, like Mehmet Bey 
sends Karis. He So Mehmet Bey wants three people killed. Steve Banning, Joe Wemple, and John Banning. He kills Steve Banning. Great. Mission accomplished. Joe Wemple and John Banning are in the same fucking room when Karis shows up to kill Joe Wemple. But... Karis, I guess, was just told go kill Jill, Wem- <laughs> go kill Joe Wemple, and like a D and D golem, he like only does exactly what he was told, and he apparently has no like agency enough to be like, oh, that's John Banning right there, let's kill him. So, like, the thing is, is somehow if you say to Karis, go kill Joe Wemple, he knows how to find that person and kill them but he's not smart enough to recognize that's the other dude I need to kill like a foot that away. So he kills Joe Wemple, goes back to Bay. Then Bay has to be like, cool, go kill Banning. So then he goes back to the same fucking house to attack Banning. He gets interrupted. So he goes back to Bay. Bay's like, oh, we didn't succeed at killing Banning. Go kill Banning. He accompanies him this time. And this time he's accompanying him and he's like stabbing people to death to get past the guards. And it's like, see, Mehmet Bay, see how much like easier it is to kill people when you're just doing it yourself. You can even verify that you successfully did it (laughs) because they're there dead in front of you. And then he like gets to Banning, attacks Banning again, gets interrupted by Isabel because she looks like Ananka again and then grabs Isabel and it's like the climax of this movie like the problem with this movie is that it could have been over at like the 55 minute point because the chorus should have showed up killed Wemple attacked Banning seen Isabel grabbed Isabel gone off with Isabel taken her back to Bay or something and then Cushing has to go to Bay and be like hey I think you have my wife kidnapped but he has to do it in the like I'm saying welcome to the neighborhood thing we do that cool goading scene then Karis is sicked on him we have a fight and we kill Karis like this movie should have been like an hour but it's an hour and a half And there's just so much of this movie that's contributing to like an extra half hour of screen time we don't fucking need because somehow like Jimmy Sangster just couldn't pull enough fucking story out of the mummy. Like he's, he looks at what he's got from the universal movies and it's like, cool, you have this backstory, this origin story. You have this setup where they break open the tomb and now he's going to come get them. And then, you know, the, all he has left is the mummy attacks people. And it's like when he had to do something different for copyright reasons, when it was like, yeah. you can't just copy Universal. You need to come up with a new take. He came up on dynamite new takes on Frankenstein and Dracula. Like he looks at Frankenstein and he's like, what if he was like actually textually evil? Like, what if he was just completely without empathy? What if he was just a real rat bastard? And then he looks at Dracula and it's like, what if like the characters are like actively trying to kill Dracula from like the get go? Like, what if Harker is like a vampire hunter? What if like Van Helsing is not like a weird old professor who happens to know a bunch of like weird lore and and puts together the mystery? What if Van Helsing like is Van Helsing comma vampire hunter? And then he gets to the mummy and he has nothing new to say. And I feel like part of it is because he didn't have to have anything new to say because he had permission to copy other movies wholesale. He needs an editor. Mm. This movie needed a second pass with an editor. Mm. And I completely agree with everything that you're saying. Um, I think that... 
you can, it's fine to do. I, I just want to make it clear that like, I don't have anything against Fisher wanting to try to do a slow moody horror. He just needs to make it good. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just, this isn't it. This like, isn't it. It's I, too slow. And it makes me wonder like, is that the mummy's curse? Right. Because like, every single one has been like far too repetitive, even within its own story. Yes. And I think you totally hit the, the nail on the head with the mummy itself needs to have agency yeah. for it to kind of work. And I think if the priests of Karnak or Arkham or whoever it is in your movie were actually scary or menacing and mm. not guys who just want to bone down, mm-hmm. maybe then it could work for the mummy to be a pawn. But like, if the thing I'm supposed to be scared of is like easily swayed with just putting my hair down. Yeah. Easy, easy money. Yeah. So here's the thing. This movie makes me appreciate the 1932 movie a lot more. Yes. Because the 32 movie gets the like creepy pace and like the creepy atmosphere much better. The scene where the guy goes crazy at the start is a million times better. And you know, Basically, the thing is, what all of the Mummy movies since that one have done is they've taken Karloff's character and split him into two people. Yeah. Right? The Mummy and the guy who can talk to you about how you've raped Egypt's heritage, right? And the thing is, like, he needs to be the same guy. Like, he needs to be the villain of your movie. And this made me realize how the 1999 Mummy movie did such smart things in two very important cases. Okay. The first is putting the backstory of Imhotep at the start of the fucking movie. Because <laughs> you like here, the backstory, the flashback, it's like 13 minutes long. It's way too long. Cushing is like describing shit that's happening in front of you at the slowest pace you've ever seen something happen. She died. And then they anointed her with oil. And then they boiled her body in the sacred wax or whatever. And you're seeing it on the screen, but like, it's not stylishly shot like the flashback in the original. It's also like, like a door closing takes like two minutes. I swear to God, (laughs) it's so slow paced. But the other thing is like, it was a flashback late in the movie in the 32 picture as well. It's shorter and it's more stylish, but it still comes really late. With it being at the start of the movie, that helps the movie have horror because we have suspense because the audience knows there's a cursed mummy in the tomb, like textually rather than just because we bought a ticket to a movie called The Mummy when they open up the tomb. The audience knows the danger. The characters don't. That creates dramatic irony, which is suspense, which is tension. So that was really smart. The other thing the 99 Mummy movie did that was very smart is, you know, by following the 32 movie and making the mummy the villain who has agency and is is his own character, they took the priests of Karnak and they were like, well, wait a minute. These are the guys who, like, when the mummy did a blasphemy, were like, cool, we're going to cut your tongue out and bury you alive and put a curse on you. So why the fuck are those guys on the mummy's side? Yeah, absolutely. It's like, it's such a smart decision to take those guys and be like, they're trying to stop the mummy, 
But because they're like, you know, mysterious foreigners, the main characters don't know, like, are those guys on our side or not until late in the story? Like, that's such a smart change that makes so much more fucking sense. So, yeah, just like, I like, okay, (laughs) on paper, this movie does a good job of being like a condensation of the Universal Mummy movies. It's like... I would agree. It On paper, you'd think, yeah, this works. This brings everything all together. Yeah, it's... it's Here's the speedrun version of, like, these four other movies that all kind of had the same plot anyway. But when you watch it play out, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And there's one thing that I have to call out because I think if this one thing was different, this whole movie could work... A little bit better. Okay. Because I was trying to figure out, like, what the fuck happened to Terrence Fisher? Like, he's a good horror director. Why does this not feel like horror at all? Yeah. Why has he lost the ability to create tension and suspense and menace? It's because the fucking score is the wrong fucking tone for the whole movie. Ah, yes. Franz Reisenstein scores this thing like he's scoring Cleopatra or the Ten Commandments. Not a horror movie. Like, he does that, like, epic Egyptian kind of style music that all movies just have decided that's what ancient Egypt sounds like, and that's fine. But, like, during the flashback sequence, it feels even longer and even slower than it is because the music is giving it this, like, pretension. Like, as we're hearing about the priests of Karnak marched in the procession, the music has, like, choirs going and shit. Like, as if this is fucking Ben-Hur and, like, <laughs> Jesus just showed up. Like, there's there's all this music, like, they're scoring a historical epic. Like, the, the score yes. sounds like a historical epic score. And then when scary shit has to happen when we're back in England, the score doesn't know what to fucking do other than kind of Mickey Mouse around where it's like, oh, like, things are slowing down in the pace. Well, then I'll have, like, an oboe, you know, kind of do, like, a slower kind of pace, like, whir, 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 whir. and, like, oh, things are, like, speeding up. Then I'll go ba 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 with, like, some, like, brass. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's the wrong fucking score. And it makes the whole movie not fucking work. (laughs) It sounds like you're saying this isn't horror. It is. Okay. Because it's clearly trying to be, right? Like, it clearly is like, we're making a horror movie. We're making a mummy movie. We're making the mummy movie. It's just, it fucking fails. I don't know where you're leading with this. Uh Uh-huh. I am going to put my foot down and say we are ranking this. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, no, okay. no. No, no. Absolutely. Because, like, what they're intending to do, yes, I agree with you about the music, but they are intending to make a yes. horror movie. That's the thing. It, this is intending to be horror, and that's what matters. Because if stuff that sucked at being horror wasn't horror, then there would only be good horror movies, right? <laughs> so, no, this is definitely a horror movie. It just sucks at being one because they made a bunch of choices that don't work mm-hmm. for the story. Like, I think the people who like this movie, my guess is, like it. Because if you're trying to think of a good movie mummy who embodies mm. what we like, think of as a movie mummy. Like the the quintessential, you know, um, archetypal mummy as a monster. It's not Karloff. No. 
and the it's Tom Tyler. The yeah, it's none of the choruses from the 40s because those movies all fucking suck. Yeah, it's it would be Christopher, Christopher Lee. Lee. And so I think like Christopher Lee on his own <laughs> is like making this movie stand out as seeming like it's good in people's memories. I will say Peter Cushing does a good job. Yeah, but he's also like just playing Van Helsing from Dracula. Like he's, he, well, actually, no, I'm going to correct myself. Yeah. He is not playing Van Helsing from Dracula. He is still in Sherlock Holmes mode. Oh, in this movie. Absolutely. That's the thing. Yes. It's why like the scenes where he kisses his wife feel so like fake where it's like, because Sherlock's gay. Yeah. Cause you're like, I can say that because he's in the public domain. (laughs) Right. It's like, you guys don't love each other. I don't buy this romance. And I think it's totally because he walked off of the set from Hound of the Baskervilles, which if you've heard our bonus episode on Hound of the Baskervilles, Peter Cushing was like, yes, I shall be Sherlock Holmes. This is what I was born to do. And like fucking threw himself into that role. And so I feel like he walked off the set of that onto the set of this and is still just kind of being Sherlock Holmes, which is fine. Peter Cushing is good in this, but he's not carrying the movie the way that Christopher Lee is. Granted, the two of them together are fucking head and shoulders above every other actor in this movie. Uh, Yvonne playing Isabel is just flat nothing. The guy playing Inspector Mulrooney has like a, a weird, weird accent. Like, Brooklyn yeah, accent? Yeah, like he sounds like yeah. he's from New York. It's very strange. And the two older guys, like Steve Banning and Joe Wemple, are terrible. Yeah. They're so bad. Um, What did you think about the guy who played Mohammed Bey? He's fine. Yeah, he wasn't bad. He's not bad. He's like... I would have preferred if they had gotten Turin Bay. Sure. I don't know what's up with Turin Bay in 1959, but... Oh, you know who they should have gotten? Mm. Omar Sharif. Well, we are three years away from anyone knowing who Omar Sharif is. Yeah, so they could have gotten him cheap. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, let's move on to ranking. For sure. Let me just lay out some landmarks for us. Okay, so the previous Terrence Fisher movies... At number six, Horror of Dracula. Mm-hmm. Number 43, The Curse of Frankenstein. So that's the first one. At number 90, The Revenge of Frankenstein. And to remind folks about our two highest ranked mummy movies, at number 146 is The Mummy's Tomb, which is uh, Cars Comes to Massachusetts. And number 173 is The Mummy with Boris Karloff. What are you thinking, Ben? So this has to be worse than all of the existing Mummy movies. Oh, I don't know about all of them. Because listen, listen, it doesn't do the I'm going mad in a tomb seeing the mummy scene as good as the 32. And it doesn't do the flashback scenes as good as the 32. The Okay, biggest disappointment about those flashback scenes, like one of the things that just drove me nuts about how boring this fucking movie was, Watch the flashback scene in the 1932 movie. Karloff is terrified of this horrible punishment. Like he's squirming. His eyes are bugging out of yes. his head. Yes. Christopher Lee as Karis just seems to be like taking his punishment willingly. Like they're like, well, we're going to. He does know he fucked up. No, he does. But like, so did fucking Imhotep. But here he's like, yeah, you're right. I should definitely be cursed. I will just go <laughs> along with this every step of the way. Yeah, he willingly. Resist. The problem is, is like, even if that makes sense on a character choice, like, oh, he's so devoted to Karnak that he takes his punishment. It's a fucking horror movie. You need to have some horror in your fucking horror movie. Okay. But... So it's, it's definitely worse than that movie. So, okay. 
It's Besides Cars Coast to Massachusetts, the highest ranked Cars movie is at number 203. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't feel right putting this below The Mummy's Curse. Here's why I think it should go below The Mummy's Curse. Ugh. The Mummy's Curse has one standout amazing scene, and it's Ananka coming back to life in the swamp, and that one scene is better than anything in this whole goddamn movie. Uh, but it's also like fucking... Uh, okay. So then The Mummy's Ghost, that's the one with John Carradine as... The priest that the time. priest. That's at 210, and right below that is The Mummy's Hand, which only ranks that low because... It's on an adventure scale. Yeah. I I do not feel right putting this below John Carradine. Okay. I'm going to tell you where I picked out a spot for this okay, and you just, can talk me yeah, up. Yeah, you just fucking tell, tell me. Just fucking tell me, Ben. So <laughs> I was looking below the mummy's hand because as I said, I, I think this is the worst one. And I'm like, Werewolf of London, Avenging Conscience, The Golem, Bride of the Gorilla. And then I, I saw Kaiden Kagami Gafuchi, and I was like, that is such a perfect example of this movie, because like this movie, it goes through all of the motions and does all the things you're supposed to do in the ghost story, and you just don't give a fuck. And right below that movie was Jungle Captive, and I'm like, Paula Dupree movies suck. So I picked out 220 as my spot. So talk me up. Voodoo uh, Island. Where is Voodoo Island ranked? 209. What's Voodoo Island? Is that the Horace Karloff and Carnivorous Plants? Is that the one where the German guy is the witch doctor at the end, even though they're supposed to be like Tahitian or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, that movie's very bad. But Neanderthal Man, which is a really bad movie. Very bad. But the implications of the horror and everything is why it's here. What do you feel about between those two? So the thing about Neanderthal Man is the worst things about Neanderthal Man are also the best things about Neanderthal Man. Well, except for the costume. But yeah, 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 the costume's trash. But like the, Neanderthal Man is otherwise, for those of you listeners who don't remember it, a boring indie shot in Bronson Canyon sci-fi horror movie. But there's this bit where you find out he like experimented on his like housemaid that's super horrific like without her consent and there's also a bit where it's strongly implied he rapes someone and the the thing is is that's really an unpleasant element to throw into your drive-in movie but the actress who plays the post-rape scene of her character does an amazingly good job that's just much better than any of the acting displayed by anyone else in that movie so it it, it's tough because it's like, I don't want that movie to have a rape in it, but like, it's a horror movie and you did a good job of expressing the horror of that situation. So I don't know, man. I will say, because someone might point this out, at 206 mm. is Pharaoh's Curse. That is a fairly good horror movie with a mummy. They're all camped like outside. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, man. I think Pharaoh's Curse is probably a little better. It's yeah. not a good movie. The The problem is, is like, on a movie making level, this is a lot better than a lot of the stuff down here. But on a horror movie level, it's not. It's bad. It's it's bad. You oh. did mention Paula Dupree. That's also at two oh four. Jungle Woman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's fair. That's fair. 
Okay, I'm willing to come up a little bit here, mostly because if you said to me, like, would you rather watch The Mummy or Neanderthal Man, I would probably pick The Mummy. But if you asked me, would I rather watch The 1959 Mummy or Plan 9 from Outer Space, I'm going to watch Plan 9. Okay, so it sounds like you're saying between Plan 9 and Neanderthal Man. Yeah, um, do you want to, do you feel like strongly about going higher, though? So I was torn when looking at where the mummy is, uh, the 32, uh, is at 173, because while I also found a new appreciation of that movie, above it is the devil doll, Sure. <laughs> which like, I, I know why it's there, but I was like, how to compare the devil doll to the 59, the mummy return of Dr. X is above. Mm-hmm. It's really, this is really hella hard you know what like hun mystery of the wax museum is a better horror movie than this mummy movie i know but i just feel bad it oh yeah it's my feelings some, ben. for sure like some of these movies are worse as movies yeah you know but i can't i can't go anywhere near that high yeah no i i understand so let's let's go below plan nine then okay so uh, you, you still talked me up like 20 spots. Yes, so. I know. Um, <laughs> Dragged you kicking and screaming. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I think now is maybe a good time for someone to submit an appeal for the 1932 mummy. Maybe we've been too harsh on it over the years. But um, <sighs> maybe. yeah. Okay. If you're good with this, cool. So entering the list at the new number 208, a slot below Plan 9 from Outer Space is The Mummy from 1959, directed by Terrence Fisher. Benito's going to be so mad. It was, it's just, it's so boring. It's so boring. How is it I'm this really boring? I'm really sorry, Benito. I'm really sorry, Terrence Fisher. I'm really sorry, Peter Cushing. I'm really sorry, Christopher Lee. I don't know what happened, guys. Well, you, I think you hit the nail on the head with the music. Yeah. If you would like to see this list, you can visit ScreamScenePodcast.com, and there you, you can find links to all the other episodes that we've mentioned today as well as our appeals box. If you do want to contest this or any other ranking, you can reach us through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach us through our email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter or other social media at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. If you'd like to subscribe to the show, you can do so using our RSS feed. If you would like to help support the show, you can give us a rating or a review, or you can tell a friend about the show and get someone else listening to these wacky episodes that we put out uh, where we badmouth Terrence Fisher movies. Or but we feel real bad about it. We feel it. real bad about it. <laughs> or if you want to help, like, show your financial support for the show if you would like to monetarily express your appreciation for what we do here you can head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month patrons at the five and ten dollar levels get access to regular bonus content and patrons of all levels get to participate in our monthly polls to determine our horror adjacent bonus episode for the month which for this month, February, it's it's going to be a Bugs Bunny cartoon. So that's going to be wild. <laughs> um, so that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Do we hit the 1960s? No, no, no we're still in 1959. Uh, because this was September. We got a lot of October to get uh. through. Uh, but our next film is the 
follow-up from the producers of The Blob. Oh. It's the 4D man. I, but there's a, no, there isn't four dimensions. The fourth dimension is time, but it's not in this movie. Okay. Well, we will discover the new dimension in next week's movie. See you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.